In Colossians 3.12, the Apostle Paul outlines five virtues that the Colossians should embody, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This verse serves as the beginning of a larger sentence that extends through verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 emphasizes the importance of forgiveness, urging believers to forgive others as they themselves have been forgiven. Verse 14 then introduces a sixth virtue, love, described as the ultimate virtue that binds all the other virtues together into a harmonious whole. Eugene Nieder, a prominent figure in the field of translation theory, would likely focus on the cultural and contextual nuances that need to be considered when translating such a text. The virtues listed are not just individual moral qualities, but are deeply embedded in the social and religious fabric of the Colossian community. Therefore, translating this verse would require a deep understanding of both the source and target languages, as well as the cultural contexts in which they operate, to convey the intended meaning faithfully. Also, Nida's interpretation of Colossians 3.12 focuses on the imperative put on, which he suggests is a continuation of the language used in verses 9, 10 about putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Nida posits that this language is likely rooted in the ritual of baptism, where the baptized individual is symbolically clothed in a new garment. Moreover, he highlights that the verse refers to the Colossians as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, terms that were originally used in the Old Testament to describe Israel. In the New Testament, these terms are applied to believers, signifying them as the new Israel or the true people of God. Nida points out that the today's English version, TV, of the Bible rearranges the order of these descriptors, accentuating, you are the people of God first. Furthermore, he notes that the phrase, he loved you, in TEV, translates the passive participle, beloved, which is consistent with other New Testament passages. Similarly, God's chosen ones is translated in TV as He chose you for His own, aligning with other scriptural references like Romans 8.33. In addition, the phrase, you are the people of God, can be problematic when translated literally, as it may imply exclusivity, that the believers in Colossae are the only people who belong to God. Nida suggests that to avoid this issue, the phrase could be modified to you are part of the people of God or you belong to the people of God. These alternatives maintain the original meaning while eliminating the risk of exclusivity. Further, Nida points out that in some languages a more natural expression might be you belong to God, which captures the essence of the relationship without implying exclusivity. The challenge here is to balance fidelity to the original text with the need for clarity and cultural relevance in translation. Besides, Nida identifies three major types of love that are commonly distinguished in many languages, parental love, sexual love, and friendship love. He suggests that when translating the concept of God's love for people, a term related to parental love is often the most suitable. This choice minimizes the risk of introducing inappropriate or misleading connotations. Nida's analysis highlights the importance of understanding cultural and linguistic nuances when translating religious texts as the term love can carry different meanings and implications depending on the context and the language into which it is being translated. Choosing a term that aligns closely with the intended meaning is crucial for accurate and effective communication. Additionally, the phrase chose you for his own can be interpreted in multiple ways. Nida suggests two possible translations, chose you in order that you could belong to him or chose you in order to possess you. 
Both options aim to capture the essence of the original text, but offer slightly different nuances. The first translation focuses on the idea of belonging, affirming a mutual relationship between the divine and the individual. The second translation leans more towards the concept of possession, which might imply a more unilateral form of ownership or control by the divine over the individual. Nida's approach highlights the complexities involved in translating religious texts and the need for careful consideration of the implications each word or phrase may carry. Next, Nida accentuates the importance of understanding the cultural and linguistic nuances when translating religious texts like Colossians 3.12. In this verse, the phrase, You must clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience may not be universally understood due to its figurative language. Nida suggests that the phrase could be misinterpreted as advocating for a temporary or superficial display of these virtues rather than a deep internal adoption of them. To avoid this, Nida recommends translating the phrase more directly as you must show compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. This approach aims to convey the intended meaning of the original text in a way that is culturally and linguistically accessible to a broader audience. Also, he notes that in some languages, the virtues listed may not even have corresponding nouns, requiring further adaptation for accurate translation. Moreover, Nida focuses on the five virtues that Christians are urged to clothe themselves with based on their spiritual status. These virtues are compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Nida explains that compassion is a deep feeling of sympathy for the needs and sufferings of others, akin to the biblical phrase, bowels of mercy. Kindness is the willingness to listen and respond to others in a considerate manner. Humility is the acknowledgement that all individuals are of equal worth in the eyes of God, making arrogance incompatible with Christian values. Gentleness, or meekness in some translations, is closely related to humility and is a natural outcome of it. Furthermore, patience is the ability to show forbearance and tolerance and is consistently highlighted as a key Christian virtue in various biblical passages. Nida's interpretation affirms the interconnectedness of these virtues and their foundational role in Christian ethics. In addition, Nida suggests that expressions like your heart should go out to others or you should feel sorrow in your heart for others are not to be taken literally but are idiomatic ways to convey deep emotional resonance. These phrases encapsulate the essence of compassion, which is a complex emotional and moral stance that involves empathy, concern, and a desire to alleviate suffering. The figurative language serves to enrich the text, providing a more vivid and relatable understanding of compassion. It allows for a deeper emotional connection and a more nuanced interpretation, which is crucial for texts that are often translated across different languages and cultures. Nida would likely argue that a translator should aim to capture not just the literal meaning, but also the emotional and cultural nuances embedded in such phrases to make the text universally relatable. Further, Nida would likely approach the translation of Colossians 3.12 with a focus on dynamic equivalence. This method aims to convey the intended meaning of the original text in a way that is culturally and contextually appropriate for the target audience. The verse which generally advises believers to be kind, could be translated in various ways depending on the cultural context. For example, be kind to others might be a straightforward translation in Western contexts. However, in other cultures where the concept of kindness is expressed differently, do good for others might be more appropriate. Nida would assert that the translation should not just be a word-for-word -word rendition, 
but should capture the essence of the message, ensuring that the intended audience understands the core meaning as closely as possible to how the original audience would have understood it. Therefore, the choice between be kind to others and do good for others would depend on which phrase would resonate more effectively with the intended readers, capturing the essence of kindness as understood in their cultural and linguistic context. Besides, this verse highlights the importance of humility, often framed as the opposite of pride. In this case, the message is the importance of humility and the avoidance of pride. The phrase, do not be proud or do not think that you are better than other people, serves as a negation of pride, capturing the essence of humility. Nida would likely focus on ensuring that this core message is communicated effectively in the target language, taking into account cultural nuances that may affect how humility and pride are understood. Additionally, Nida indicates the concept of gentleness as a negation of negative behaviours. According to Nida, gentleness can often be understood not just as a positive quality, but also as the absence of something undesirable, such as harshness or hardness in thought and action towards others. This perspective offers a nuanced way to approach the virtue of gentleness. Instead of merely acting in a gentle manner, one also refrains from behaviours that are the antithesis of gentleness. By avoiding harshness in dealing with others and not harbouring hard thoughts, one embodies the essence of gentleness as advised in the biblical verse. This interpretation aligns with a broader understanding of virtues, not just as actions to be performed, but also as negative impulses to be avoided. Moreover, this verse talks about the virtue of patience, describing it in various ways such as putting up with people a long time, suffering long because of people, and negatively as not being irritated with people. Rather than a word-for-word -word translation, Nida would advocate for a translation that enables readers to grasp the underlying message about patience, its endurance, and its tolerance towards others. This could involve using idiomatic expressions or cultural references that make the concept of patience relatable and understandable to the target audience. In summary, Nida's approach would focus on ensuring that the translation resonates with the readers emotionally and cognitively, just as it would have for the original audience. Furthermore, Nida focuses on the two participles forbearing and forgiving, which he contends can be understood and translated as imperatives. These words serve to guide the behaviour of Christians towards one another. Nida maintains the importance of tolerance, especially when dealing with individuals who may be ignorant or weak. He draws a parallel between being tolerant and patience, as mentioned in verse 12 of the same chapter. Nida suggests that these terms can be expressed either positively or negatively. For instance, forbearing could be understood as putting up with people for a long time, while forgiving could be seen as not being irritated by people. In addition, Nida points out the unique occurrence of the word for complaint in Colossians 3.13 within the New Testament. He draws a comparison to the cognate verb memphomai, which means to find fault with or blame, and is found in Romans 9.19 and Hebrews 8.8. 8. Nida suggests that it may be crucial to highlight the reciprocal nature of both forgiveness and complaints as indicated in the verse. In other words, the verse could be interpreted to mean that forgiveness and complaints can go both ways among individuals. This nuance could be important for a more comprehensive understanding of the text, especially in translation or theological studies. Nida's focus is on ensuring that the complexities and subtleties of the original text are accurately conveyed, which is particularly important given that the word for complaint is unique to this verse in the New Testament. Further, the verse commands believers to forgive one another, 
linking this directive to the forgiveness they have received from the Lord. Besides, the verb charizomai is used, which is found in Colossians 2.13, asserting the act of granting or giving. Additionally, the verse makes a theological point by stating that the Lord, who has forgiven, is Christ, as evidenced by some Greek manuscripts and translations like the KJV. Nida would likely stress the importance of understanding the cultural and theological context in which the term forgiveness is used. This involves not just a word-for-word -word translation, but an interpretation that captures the essence and implications of forgiveness as a divine act that should be emulated by believers. Next, Nida points out that languages can have distinct ways of expressing forgiveness depending on whether the object is a sin or a person. For instance, Forgiving a sin might be conveyed as wiping out the sin or throwing away the guilt. However, when it comes to forgiving a person, the language may require different expressions like to return a person's sin to him, to give back a person's sin, or to accept a person again. Nida's observation highlights the nuanced challenges in translating religious texts, as the concept of forgiveness can be deeply rooted in cultural and linguistic contexts. The translator must be sensitive to these nuances to accurately convey the intended meaning. Also, Nida's analysis of Colossians 3.14 focuses on the complexities of translating the Greek prepositional phrase that is often rendered as, to all these qualities add love. The Greek phrase lacks a verb and uses the preposition epi, which can be interpreted in multiple ways. First, it could be local, meaning on or over, aligning with the metaphor of clothing used in verse 12. Second, it could mean in addition to, as various translations suggest. Third, it could indicate a degree of comparison, implying more than all these or above all these. Nida reiterates the importance of treating love as a verb rather than a noun that can simply be added to other qualities. This is crucial for capturing the essence of the original text, especially in translations like the Tagalog Common Language, CL version, which states, Above all else, love one another for this is the bond of perfect unity. Nida suggests that in some instances the phrase may need to be translated as in addition to doing all that, you must also love one another or even more important than doing all that, you should love one another to convey the intended meaning accurately. Moreover, Nida delves into the concept of love as the bond of perfection or completeness within the New Testament NT context. The term bond, sundesmos, is likened to a ligament in the body serving as a connector or unifying element. Nida discusses two primary ways to understand the phrase of perfection. One interpretation suggests that love serves as the glue that binds all Christian virtues together, creating a harmonious and complete Christian character and conduct. The second interpretation posits that love is the force that unites all Christians within the body of Christ, the Church, in perfect harmony. While the term love is commonly used in the NT to describe God's or Christ's love for mankind and is considered the highest Christian virtue, its role as a bond of perfection is unique to this passage. Nida leans towards the idea that love either gives coherence to individual Christian virtues or unites Christians in the church, although he acknowledges that both interpretations have merit. Furthermore, the original text suggests that love binds all things together, which is difficult to capture with a simple noun. Nida proposes alternative phrasings to convey the idea more accurately in translation. One option is to say, by your loving one another, everything is brought together as one in a perfect way. This captures the active, unifying nature of love. 
Another interpretation could be, by loving one another, you bind yourselves together as though you are one, and this is just as it should be. Here, the phrase, just as it should be, serves to express the notion of perfection inherent in the original text. Nida's insights highlight the complexities of translating abstract concepts like love, especially when they carry significant cultural or theological weight. In addition, in Colossians 3.15, the phrase, the peace of Christ, is interpreted as the peace that originates from Christ, rather than the peace that Christ himself possesses. This peace is intended to guide the spirit of fellowship and harmony within the Christian community. Nida repeats that this peace is not just a state, but an active force, better understood in some languages when expressed causatively, such as the peace that Christ causes. This interpretation aligns with other biblical passages like John 14.27, Ephesians 2.14, and 2 Thessalonians 3.16, which also speak of the peace given by Christ. Some later manuscripts use the phrase, the peace of God, possibly influenced by Philippians 4.7, but Nida suggests that the original wording more accurately captures the causative nature of Christ's peace. Further, the verse contains the Greek verb brabio, which is unique in its New Testament occurrence, and translates to, to serve as umpire, to determine, decide. Lightfoot, another scholar, underlines that the word carries the idea of making a decision or an award, rather than merely indicating rule or power. Nida would likely advocate for a dynamic equivalence approach, aiming to capture the essence and intended meaning of brabo in a way that resonates with the modern reader. Instead of a word-for-word -word translation, he would recommend a translation that encapsulates the function of the word in its original context. In this case, the phrase, is to guide you in the decision you make, could be seen as an attempt to capture the essence of brabeo, highlighting its role in guiding or determining decisions in one's heart. The challenge here is to balance fidelity to the original text with the need to make it accessible and meaningful to contemporary readers. Nida would debate that understanding the cultural and contextual nuances of the original text is crucial for this, and he would likely support a translation that makes the concept of brabuo clear and relatable, even if it doesn't adhere strictly to a literal translation. Besides, Nida would likely advocate for a translation that captures the essence of the phrase to guide you in the decisions you make. Instead of a literal translation, he would support one that communicates the intended function of the phrase in the most understandable way for the target audience. For example, the phrase could be translated as to cause you to make decisions as to what you should do, or in direct discourse as this will cause you to decide we must do this. Additionally, Nida delves into the nuances of the phrase in your hearts as it appears in the Revised Standard Version, RSV, of the Bible. Nida identifies two primary ways this phrase is understood. The first interpretation sees in your hearts as a locale, a place within the individual where the peace from Christ resides. This view aligns with the Weymouth New Testament, Way TC, and suggests that the peace is an internal personal experience. The second interpretation takes heart in the broader biblical context, equating it with the mind or decision-making faculty. This perspective is reflected in the today's English version, TEV translation, which renders the phrase as, in the decisions you make. According to this view, the peace from Christ should guide the choices and judgments of the individual. This interpretation aligns well with the subsequent text, which underscores that God has called the community to unity and harmony within the church. Nida suggests that understanding heart as mind or decision-making makes the following injunction more coherent. 
The peace of Christ is not just an internal feeling, but a guiding principle for communal harmony and cooperation. God's intention in calling the Colossians, and by extension all Christians, is to foster such unity within the church. Therefore, the peace that Christ offers should rule not just in the emotional interior, but in the practical decisions that affect community life. Next, Nida focuses on the phrase, in the one body, which is often seen as a reference to the church. Nida acknowledges that some scholars dispute that the absence of the definite article in the original Greek text could mean that the phrase refers to in one body, pointing to a local community instead. Regardless of this distinction, Nida indicates the importance of the metaphor body in Pauline theology. For Paul, the body serves as an apt representation of the unity that Christians should have in their relationship with Christ. Whether referring to the church at large or a local community, the metaphor underscores the interconnectedness and unity that should exist among Christians, all of whom are considered part of the body in union with Christ. Also, Nieder accentuates the importance of restructuring certain phrases or clauses to make them more understandable in different languages. He uses the example of Colossians 3.15, specifically the clause, For it is to this peace that God has called you together in the one body. Nida suggests that this clause may need to be radically restructured in some languages to convey the intended meaning more clearly. He offers an alternative phrasing, For God has called you together to be one body in order that you should experience this kind of peace. Moreover, the phrase in the one body may not directly translate well into all languages. Nida suggests that in some languages it may be necessary to clarify that this is a figurative expression. Instead of a literal translation, one might use a phrase like in order to form one body, as it were, to convey the intended meaning. Furthermore, Nida advises against a literal translation that might carry unintended connotations or implications. For instance, translating called as if it means shouting at or commanding would be inappropriate in this context. Instead, he suggests that the verb called should be understood more along the lines of to urge or to urgently invite. In addition, Nida focuses on the concept of thankfulness, particularly its expression towards God. According to Nida, the command to be thankful in this verse is almost an afterthought, unique in its use of the adjective eucharistos in the New Testament. The verse not only affirms the feeling of gratitude, but also the importance of expressing this gratitude through giving thanks to God. Nida suggests that the imperative be thankful can be understood differently depending on the language and cultural context. In some languages, it may be more appropriate to express this as an obligation, such as, you must be thankful to God, or you should be thankful to God. Further, according to Nida, the phrase, the word of Christ, refers to the Christian message or gospel, rather than words directly spoken by Christ. This is the only instance where this specific phrase is used in the New Testament. Some manuscripts use alternative phrases like, the word of God, or the word of the Lord, which are more common. Nida suggests that to better capture the essence of the phrase, it would be more accurate to use the message about Christ in English translations. This would clarify that the focus is on the message concerning Christ rather than a message directly from him. Besides, the Greek term enoikeo is often translated as be at home, and it refers to something residing deeply within a person, whether it's the Holy Spirit, faith, or even sin. Nida argues that the command in Colossians 3.16 is not just about an external adherence to religious norms, but implies that the Christian message should become an integral and permanent part of one's life. 
This is a challenge for translators, especially when the concept of a message living in someone's heart may not easily translate into all languages. Alternative phrasings like a message finding a place in a person's heart or a message may speak to someone's heart could be more universally understood, capturing the intended depth and permanence of the original text. Additionally, Nida focuses on the phrase in all its richness as a metaphorical representation of the abundant resources and blessings inherent in the Christian message. According to Nida, this phrase can be understood in two ways. It can either describe the richness of the message itself or the richness with which the message should be internalized and lived out by the believer. In the first interpretation, the phrase asserts the depth and wealth of the Christian message which can be termed as the wonderful message. In the second interpretation, it underscores the idea that believers should internalize and live out the message in a manner that is equally rich and wonderful. Regardless of the perspective, the core meaning remains the same. The Christian message is a source of immense spiritual wealth and should be both received and enacted in a manner that reflects its richness. Next, the Greek phrase in you can be interpreted in two ways, in your hearts or among you. The first interpretation focuses on individual spirituality, while the second highlights the collective experience within the church community. Nida suggests that if one opts for the second interpretation, the phrase must live in you could be translated as must influence how you live with one another or must determine how you behave toward one another. This highlights the need for translators to be sensitive to the multiple layers of meaning in a text, especially when translating religious or philosophical works where each word can carry significant weight. The choice of interpretation can significantly impact the message conveyed, making it crucial to consider the broader context and potential implications. Also, Nida's analysis of Colossians 3.16 focuses on the complexities of interpreting the Greek text. He identifies three main areas of ambiguity. 1. The participles teaching, admonishing and singing can either be understood as circumstantial, describing the context in which the main verb's command is executed, or as imperatives, which is a common usage in the New Testament. 2. The phrase, with all wisdom, can be associated either with the preceding word living, or with the subsequent words teaching and admonishing. Most scholars prefer linking it with teaching and admonishing. 3. The terms psalms, hymns and sacred songs can be connected either with the preceding verbs instructing and admonishing, suggesting these are the means through which instruction and admonition are given, or with the following participle, singing, as is the case in most modern translations. Moreover, the term nutheteo is a Greek verb that can be translated as warn, admonish, instruct. Nida suggests that the context in which the term is used can influence its translation. In Colossians 1.28, the term is translated as warn, which could also be applicable here. However, Nida points out that there is value in distinguishing between teach and instruct in this context. Therefore, he proposes that a more accurate translation might be teach one another and warn one another. Alternatively, for a more positive connotation, the term instruct could be rendered as show the right road to one another, which captures the essence of guiding someone in a positive direction. Furthermore, the phrase with all wisdom can be interpreted in various ways, and Nida suggests that it may be rendered as a means to convey the message more clearly. For instance, it could be translated as by using all wisdom or by being wise in every way. In addition, in the context of the verse, these terms psalms, hymns and spiritual songs are used to describe different forms of musical worship. Further, 
Psalms refer to Old Testament compositions that were adopted by early Christians for communal worship. Hymns are possibly Christian-specific compositions that glorify Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Spiritual songs could be spontaneous expressions of faith inspired by the Holy Spirit. Nida would indicate the importance of understanding the cultural and historical context in which these terms were used to capture their essence in translation or interpretation. Besides, he might consider how these forms of worship serve to edify the community and individual believers, as the verse suggests. The challenge lies in differentiating these terms precisely, as they can overlap in meaning and usage. Nida would likely advocate for a dynamic equivalence in translating these terms, aiming to convey the intended effect on the modern reader rather than a word-for-word -word translation. Additionally, according to Nida, psalms could be seen as songs of the scriptures, deeply rooted in religious tradition and often recited in a liturgical setting. Hymns could be understood as songs about Jesus, focusing on the life, teachings and divinity of Jesus Christ. Also, spiritual songs could be translated as songs from God's Spirit or songs caused by the Spirit, maintaining the inspiration or guidance from the Holy Spirit. Moreover, the phrase in grace poses a challenge for translators due to the uncertainty surrounding the inclusion of the definite article, the. Nida notes that the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament, UBSGKNT, does not provide much clarity on this issue, as it includes the article within brackets. He outlines three possible interpretations for translating the phrase. 1. With thanksgiving. This is the choice made by translations like the Today's English Version, TEV, and the Revised Standard Version, RSV. Furthermore, it is supported by scholars like Abbott and Lowe's and appears in other translations like the New English Bible, NEB, Today's New Testament, TNT, Jerusalem Bible, JB, and New American Bible, NAB. 2. By the grace of God. This interpretation is suggested by Lightfoot and implies that the grace of God is the source of the thanksgiving or the action being described. 3. With beauty. This is another possible translation proposed by Bear, which takes the phrase to mean that the action should be performed in a beautiful or graceful manner. Nida highlights the complexities involved in translating religious texts, where a single phrase can have multiple interpretations, each with its own theological implications. In addition, according to Nida, the activities of singing and giving thanks are closely related but distinct. The difficulty arises when trying to maintain the relationship between these two activities in translation. One approach is to treat them as coordinate activities, translating the phrase as sing to God and be thankful. Another approach is to make the act of singing dependent on the act of thanksgiving, translating it as when you sing to God, be thankful. Further, Nida points out that the phrase in your hearts can be associated either with thanksgiving or with singing, leading to different interpretations. In the former case, it could mean being thankful in one's heart, while in the latter, it could imply singing fervently or enthusiastically. Nida contends that it's unlikely that Paul intended the singing to be silent given the context. However, Nida also highlights the cultural and linguistic challenges of translating in your hearts into other languages. The concept of heart may not universally signify the same emotional or intellectual nuances as it does in English. For instance, in some languages it might be more appropriate to say being thankful in your thoughts or have your mind say thanks to God. Similarly, singing with all your heart could be better translated as singing with strength or with great happiness in certain cultural contexts. 
Besides, the King James Version, KJV, uses to the Lord, which is seen in some later manuscripts and is influenced by a parallel passage in Ephesians 5.19. Both phrases aim to denote the object of Christian worship and devotion. Therefore, the choice between to God and to the Lord should be guided by how well each option conveys this meaning to the target audience. Additionally, the verse 17 concludes a section, 3, 5, 17, with a general command that all actions and words by the Colossians should be in the name of the Lord Jesus. Nida maintains that this phrase can be translated in various languages as, as believers in the Lord Jesus, or as followers of the Lord Jesus, to capture its essence. Also, he addresses the challenges posed by the passive construction, should be done, especially in languages that prefer active expressions. In such instances, the verse can be translated to an active voice, such as, whatever you do and whatever you say, you should do and say in the name of the Lord Jesus. Moreover, Nida suggests that in some languages, the meaning might be better conveyed as a conditional statement. If you do anything and if you say anything, then you should do and say all that in the name of the Lord Jesus. Overall, Nida's interpretation aims to make the verse universally understandable, pointing out the importance of representing Jesus in all aspects of life. Furthermore, Nida focuses on the phrase, through him, referring to Christ. Nida clarifies that this phrase should not be understood as implying that Christ serves merely as an intermediary for believers to communicate their thanks to God. Rather, through him signifies that all blessings and reasons for thanksgiving have come from God via the life and works of Christ. Nida suggests that a literal interpretation might mislead people into thinking they should thank Christ who would then pass on the thanks to God. Instead, the believer's gratitude is directed towards God the Father, acknowledging the blessings received through Christ's actions. Nida even proposes alternative phrasings to make this point explicit, such as, as you thank God the Father for what has happened to you through Christ, or for what Christ has done for you. This interpretation aims to provide a nuanced understanding of the text, reiterating the direct relationship between the believer and God, facilitated by Christ. Last but not least, the verse contains a participle phrase, as you give thanks, which some interpreters consider to function as an imperative. Nida would point out the importance of understanding the grammatical and cultural context to accurately convey the intended meaning. The original text says, to God the Father, but some later manuscripts have altered this to, to the God and Father, possibly influenced by a similar verse in Ephesians 5.20. Nida would likely suggest that translators consider the target audience's understanding of God when translating to God the Father. For some cultures or religious backgrounds, it might be more appropriate to translate it as to God who is our Father, to clarify the relationship and avoid any misunderstandings. In conclusion, in Colossians 3.12, the Apostle Paul outlines five virtues for the Colossians to embody, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The verses that follow reiterate forgiveness and introduce a sixth virtue, love, described as the ultimate binding force for all other virtues. Nida repeats the importance of understanding the cultural and contextual intricacies when translating such texts as the values enumerated are deeply embedded in the social and religious fabric of the community. For example, Nida suggests the phrase, you are the people of God, could be problematic if translated literally, as it might imply exclusivity. As an alternative, he suggests using you are part of the people of God or you belong to the people of God to retain the original meaning while eliminating hints of exclusivity. In addition, Nida delves into the challenges of translating the abstract concept of love.
He identifies three major types of love frequently distinguished in languages, parental love, sexual love, and friendship love. For translating God's love for people, Nida suggests using a term that aligns closely with parental love to circumvent potentially inappropriate connotations. Further, interpreting and expressing abstract concepts like these across different cultures and languages could often require creative modifications. For instance, a phrase like, you must clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience might not resound universally due to its figurative language. To navigate this, Nida recommends translating it more directly as, you must show compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Besides, the interpretation of verses like Colossians 3.12 showcases the complexity of translating religious texts and the importance of careful word or phrase selections to yield accurate translations. It underscores the balance between the fidelity to original texts and the need for clarity and cultural relevance in translating such texts. Each word and phrase must be considered for the implications they may carry within a given context. Additionally, Nida provides essential insights into the linguistic nuances and complexities of translating particular verses, especially those that carry significant cultural or theological weight. His main focus is ensuring that the meaning resonates with readers culturally, emotionally and cognitively, just as intended for the original audience. It is about capturing not just the literal semantics, but also the emotional and cultural nuances rooted in these verses to make the text universally relatable. Lastly, the ultimate goal is to produce a translation that not only captures the essence of the message, but also ensures that core meaning is understood as closely as possible by the intended audience, just as the original audience would have understood it. This highlights the importance of a translator's thorough understanding of the cultural and contextual nuances, ensuring that the translation is faithful to the original text while being accessible and relevant to its target audience.